2: Photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
1: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
2: Good evening, listeners.
1: Good evening, listeners.
2: Good evening, listeners. listeners. It's June 2nd, 2019, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch.
1: And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
2: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Shauna Otto from the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics where she works in the lab of Dr. Colin Johnson. Hi, Shauna.
0: Hi there. How are you doing?
2: Thanks a lot for being with us on the show this evening. And uh, you have, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about uh, your work with proteins in a minute in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. But can you start off a little bit about just muscle cells and how muscles work?
0: Uh, sure. So um, where the... Um, brain sends a signal out to your muscles through the nerves. Uh, the nerve is going to touch the muscle fiber or a group of muscle fibers, um, in one spot and it's going to release a molecule called acetylcholine, um, which is going to be picked up by receptors, uh, on that muscle. And that's going to, um, sort of trigger, a Rube Goldberg esque sort of cascade of signals <laughs> <laughs> that uh, eventually, um, results in the release of a bunch of calcium from what's called the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is similar to an endoplasmic reticulum, if you remember from IntroBio. So a whole flood of calcium is released. Um, This binds to a couple uh, different proteins, um, and they then get out of the way and allow actin and myosin, uh, a couple uh, really abundant uh, muscle cell proteins, um, to interact and their interaction is what's gonna create um, the force of the muscle contraction. Um, And because calcium is used uh, in this process, the cell is really super duper serious about maintaining calcium levels. Um, The calcium level outside a muscle cell is typically 10,000 times um, uh, higher than the concentration inside the cell. So uh, your body works real, real hard after that nerve impulse and cascade to sort of sop up any remaining calcium and to uh, get it sort of packed back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Um, and if your body doesn't have the energy to do that, it can cause problems. So if you've heard of rigor mortis, that's because oh. uh, the calcium isn't being sort of sponged up or pumped back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum because, you know, you've passed. Uh, <laughs> so you get like intense muscle, muscle contraction for a while because the action and myosin are just like, Constantly tugging at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the uh, calcium levels. Okay.
2: Okay. And what about um, damage to your muscle cells? Like, what does that look like, and uh, how does what happens to the calcium if you have like a tear in your muscle cell? So um, all
0: cells are surrounded by a cell membrane, and that's um, what helps to keep the uh, concentration difference uh, across the membrane, um, along with a whole bunch of other uh, channel proteins. so if there's a tear in that membrane, the calcium can just flood in. It's going to run down its concentration gradient, like uh, if you have a, a tear in the hull of a ship, the water is just going to really want to rush in, rush in and fill that vacuum. Um, so this is obviously not great um, <laughs> for the muscle cell, but it's something that happens regularly. You know, you're you're working out. There's there's a lot of mechanical insults that <laughs> <laughs> um, poor little muscle cells uh, endure. Um, so the body has uh, ways of patching those up as quickly as possible um, in a calcium-dependent matter because it's, it's really trying to stop that flood of calcium coming into the cell. Right. So there's a whole like suite of proteins that pick up on that calcium signal and rush to the cell surface and sort of patch things up. So
1: calcium and especially the concentration gradient acts like a, like kinetic energy as long as you have mm-hmm. this you know strong difference in calcium concentration then proteins are doing a, or they're doing a lot of the work mm-hmm. right the calcium's kind of like that that indicator flag that's like all right everybody go yeah yeah so there's proteins doing the contraction there's mm-hmm. proteins doing all of the repair mm-hmm. and it's all driven by calcium as well So how how do these proteins work that, they kind of flip a switch depending on how much calcium is there.
0: Well, that's uh, sort of where my graduate work uh, ties in. That's where the dissertation. dissertation is. Yeah, yeah. we're here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
0: so I'm working with a protein called dysferlin, which is involved in the uh, membrane repair pathway. So sensing that calcium increase, recruiting a bunch of other proteins, um, grabbing up bits of cell membrane uh, from little vesicles, Catching them together and um, taking it towards um, the, the surface of the plasma membrane, um, and so uh, the protein I work with is pretty huge—250 um, uh, plus or minus kilodaltons. Mm, just know that that's really large. It's a—that's it, <laughs> huge. It's a big protein. protein. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm zoomed in on just one single piece of it, uh, one domain out towards the tip, and it's. Uh, 15 kilodaltons or so. So it's like a, a very tiny piece of it. Um, so I'm looking to see how that particular domain responds to calcium. So what sort of conformational changes is it is it uh, going through upon calcium binding? Um, so how uh, that can, the calcium binding can cause it to change conformations, maybe have new functions, new um, Uh, new interactions um, with lipids and other proteins and such.
1: So before we get deeper into the disferlin world, Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about ferlins in general. It's a family of proteins and there's kind of a bunch of different functions that they have in the body. And Mm -hmm. if the protein doesn't work well, things don't go as planned.
0: Yeah. So in general, ferlins are membrane trafficking proteins. Um, They're all on the large side, um, and they have uh, what are called C2 domains, um, anywhere from five to seven C2 domains. And these domains are, uh, usually they bind calcium and usually they bind um, uh, lipids, either anionic lipids like phosphatidylserine and phosphatidylenositols. And uh, our lab is looking to see what exactly these, Proteins are are doing, and they're different. Like, see, they both have very um, uh, sort of niche areas to work in. So, uh, a classical calcium sensor with C2 domains would be snaptagmin, which works in the brain. Um, uh, but that one's a little bit smaller; only has two C2 domains. Um, but because they're so similar structurally, we think they have a similar function. So. Um, two really well characterized ferlins are dysferlin, which I work on, and otoferlin. Um, and you talked about uh, if something goes wrong in the protein, um, these two proteins. If you have certain mutations, you end up with a fairly drastic phenotype. So with dysferlin, um, if you have mutations in that protein, you can um, end up with a late developing form of muscular dystrophy. So you, uh, muscle wasting, um, atrophy, fat deposition, um, all related to the repair of the mm-hmm. muscle cells. Yeah. Yes. And then with Otoferlin, um, Otoferlin helps to um, regulate vesicle release in um, the auditory pathway. So folks born with a mutation in this protein end up either um, congenitally deaf or there's kind of an interesting mutation where they're only deaf uh, when they're running a fever, it's like a temperature-sensitive mutation, huh. Whoa, which is pretty—it's really? pretty wild. Uh, you huh. get a fever, you're deaf for a hot huh, second, and then, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it and, is. then it, and then it goes back down, and you can hear again. Um, so, just a small mutation is having profound uh, effect on the function of this of this proteins.
1: Let's. Uh, uh, describe one of the terms you've used so far Mm -hmm. that's confirmation and Mm -hmm. if my intro to bio Mm -hmm. memory is correct confirmation is kind of the structural arrangement and organization
0: yes and
1: if a protein is kind of arranged in the correct way then it can perform all the functions that it typically does but Mm -hmm. if there is a mutation or the confirmation is ever so slightly different Mm -hmm. then that function is either impeded or it doesn't function that way anymore Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the other one was uh, confirmation, oh, and domains. Domains. So domains are like little regions.
0: Yeah, uh, technically it would be an independently folding piece of a protein. Um, okay. um, let's see, any sort of like part that you could swap out, they're sort of modular. So if oh, I wanted to build okay. a protein that could add a phosphate to something and also uh, goes to the plasma membrane in a calcium-dependent manner to do one of those functions, uh, go to the membrane in a calcium-dependent manner, I'd slap a C2 domain on there. And for phosphorylation, I would slap a kinase domain on there. And then with their powers combined, they can (laughs) do the function. So kind of like
1: transformers. I guess transformers have to be, well, I know some transformers, like their arm can come off and do uh, something cool.
0: (laughs) More like... where they all combine, like Voltron, sort of. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Where they all modular. Come together, yeah. yeah. And then together they're like more uh, powerful. Than yes, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> they could be
0: on their own, a C2 domain on its own. Might right. be a little boring, but pair it with six
2: others and oh boy, now we have a big protein. Yeah. <laughs> all right, I wanna talk a little bit more about um, Disferlin, if you're ready to go there, Adrian. Yes. All right. So (laughs) dysferlin is the protein that you study, like you said, and you study just a small domain of this. And this is the one where mutations cause muscular dystrophy, the late onset form. Mm -hmm. And uh, so how does one study a protein domain? And you're particularly interested in calcium. So how how do you do that?
0: So the main technique I use is NMR or nuclear magnetic resonance. Um, It's very, very similar to the technology used in MRI. But they had to change the name MRI to MRI so the word nuclear wouldn't be in there because people get a little jumpy when it. they're going to get shoved into a machine with the word nuclear on it. But <laughs> the nuclear refers to um, just the atomic nuclei um, that are present in whatever sample you're running. Um, if you have taken organic chemistry, you've definitely seen NMR. Um, proteins are a wee bit bigger than organic chemicals. Uh, so we have to use... Um, slightly more complex experiments to look at it, but uh,
2: uh, the main concept is the same. Um, so I'm thinking back to organic chemistry, like uh, learning what the frequency or what comes off of the NMR, it's got like peaks and stuff, mm-hmm. and that's how you can distinguish between different functional groups. Is that, is that my memory correct on that? Yeah, one? yeah, yeah. So uh, NMR, we stick our sample at a
0: huge magnet um, and the magnet is there to sort of force um, the nuclei in your sample into two different populations. Um, because the little nuclei are spinning, they have a magnetic moment, so they're little magnets. Yeah. Um, and the magnet can either be aligned with or against the, uh, uh, the magnetic field that it's feeling. So they can be up or down. Um, and then uh, there's a certain energy associated with a transition between up and down, right. if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this energy um, is kind of in the radio uh, uh, region of the electromagnetic spectra. So we you send um, radio pulses out uh, to flip the nuclei between the two states, and then you can watch them sort of relax back to equilibrium. And you can figure out a lot about what uh, uh, the nuclei is doing, what sort of environment it's in. Um, by tracking which radio frequencies are absorbed, so those um, little peaks. Okay. And then also um, how they behave when you poke them a little bit and uh, (laughs) uh, basically their relaxation pathway back to equilibrium. You can learn a lot of stuff about that.
2: Right, so I'm thinking you've got your disferlin and it's not had calcium yet and then you feed it, so so you do the NMR and you have Mm kind of like your baseline of what it's looking like in this conformation without Mm -hmm. calcium. And then you like put in some calcium and you do NMR again, and then now you have a different NMR spectrum, Mm -hmm. I guess. And so you can compare them and then learn kind of what's going on in that domain. Yeah, so
0: uh, I actually had to run my experiments starting at a high calcium concentration because my protein really hates being without calcium and will just like crash out uh, over the course of um, a couple days. And uh, NMR experiments, especially for structure take
1: a long time. A oh, really
0: long time.
1: Uh, just to get a sense, how long do you have to run individual samples in in your NMR tube?
0: Um, it depends on the experiment. If I'm just doing a two-dimensional experiment, it takes about half an hour. Um, That's pretty fast.
1: But for- so uh,
0: the 2D experiments, um, you take a one-dimensional NMR specter like you would see in um, organic chemistry, and you just take a whole bunch of them and line them up, and then you flip it and it sort of forms a topographical map with uh, peaks on Ooh. it. So yeah, it's it just looks like a bunch of bullseyes. Uh, and that's, um, the HSQC um, is sort of like the fingerprint of the, uh, the protein. So each little dot or each little peak that appears on the screen corresponds to a single um, NH pair um, on the backbone or there's some Amino acids with extras, but, uh, so once I figure out w- which amino acid belongs to which spot, I can then, say, take away calcium, and then I can uh, see a bunch of spots disappear because they're getting more flexible. Um, I have also added um, ligands to uh, the sample, um, phosphatidyl andositol or PIP, PIP2 to the sample, and uh, you can see some of the spots move, and those spots are the ones that correspond to amino acids that actually make contact or kind of move to accommodate and bind the peptumoidi. So So it's really cool and visual watching these little guys dance around.
1: This sounds like a 3D puzzle of which you don't actually know what it looks like when you start.
0: Yeah, especially (laughs) doing uh, assignments, figuring out what goes along with what you do a whole bunch of experiments. The three dimensional ones take days to do and a whole the whole suite probably take like two weeks from start to finish you. It's a lot of uh, just stick it in the machine and wait. So not a lot of <laughs> not a lot of on time for me. But uh, once I get the data back, it's it's uh, I think I likened it to a like three dimensional Sudoku puzzle. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, fu- it's a lot there. of fun uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, like oh this kinda looks the same. It's it was, it was a lot of fun putting together. Frustrating, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying the technique. So what have you learned about dis, disferlin through this process? So I was able to map the binding site for the PIP2. Um, I'm in the process of using a couple other techniques to validate that and uh, figure out what individual amino acids are doing. Um, I'm also in the process of solving the bound uh, structure. There's already um, a crystal structure out of the domain, but not in complex with um, this ligand that I'm interested in. Um, I've found out which parts of the domain um, become more flexible and to what extent in the absence and the presence of calcium. Um, let's see. Mm. Yeah, and uh, right now I'm working on uh, mapping uh, the binding site for um, another protein uh, partner. So that's kind of the next thing that's coming up. Very cool. I'm excited.
1: So I just kind of I'm I'm thinking about this again, and I have to re-remind myself that mm-hmm. in in proteins, structure equals function. Oh, for sure. So this three-dimensional Sudoku crazy map that you're doing, mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out where all these pieces fit together and mm-hmm. how they change and why, because again, the structure of it equates to some level of functionality Mm -hmm. that we can better understand and maybe in some ways in the future, predict or manipulate so that it can function better. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um, We have to figure out how the protein works before we can uh, figure out how to fix it. Right. Like we know that there are deficiencies if there's a mutation, but if we don't know what it's actually doing in a really um, high resolution way, um, there's really no hope of figuring out a way to fix it um, either by uh, gene therapies um, or uh, a, a druggable target or anything like that. Like you need to know the mechanism and uh, what exactly is going on on the molecular level.
1: Right. So n- thinking about proteins as a black box where... <laughs> We know there's calcium going in. Some stuff happens on the outside. That's not good enough to do any kind of, like what you described, some gene therapy or any any kind of stuff like that. So this is, um, Kristen, the title of the blog post is uh, Microstructures and Macro... Support. Macro support. Yeah, this is is really where I see it kind of coming together. Mm. Um, What... Do you have an example of another protein or a similar example where we have kind of gone through this process? We do know how a specific protein does function and what have we been able to do with that kind of knowledge?
0: Hmm. Oh man, there's so many. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which one's your favorite? Which one do you want to pick from? Oh gosh. Um, Hmm. Hmm. uh I'm really interested in um, signal transduction pathways uh, and uh, just like sensory uh, transductions that's kind of what led me to Collins lab was the OdaFlin um, side of things um, but I think something that we've uh, gotten really really into detail with is... Um, uh, rhodopsin uh, in the eye. Like we know like exactly what's going on. I don't know about exactly what's going on there, but we have a very clear idea of what's going on in the active site. Um, So what is that
1: one? You're saying we can see it very clearly. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What is a rhodopsin? Oh, so um, that is a, um, a membrane protein that's in the visual pathway. That's the, Seeing it clearly pun, thank right. you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it has a um, a ligand that uh, isomerizes um, uh, when it comes into contact with light. So it's that isomerization of a ligand that translates into a conformational change, which, again, stars this Rube Goldberg pathway. So instead of, of being
1: calcium sensitive, it's photosensitive.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wicked. Yeah, and like taste receptors, same thing, uh, instead of being... Yeah, calcium sensitive. It's pH sensitive. So the tart uh, taste is just hydrogen ion concentration, um, or salt, just salt gated channels. Umami flavored stuff. <laughs> it's just a, it's just a glutamate receptor. It's all yeah. And so that cool.
2: triggers. So you're, so uh, the example then is uh, proteins that we know a lot more about, and so we know that more about their structure, thus more mm. about their function and how, what turns them on and excites them mm. and leads to your sen- the sensory perception that you're describing. Mm. Um, so I'm just wondering like ballpark, like disferlin, how mm. far away are we from mm. maybe oh. knowing more about, or knowing everything, or it's as a, much as we know about rhodopsin. Oh God, it's a giant
0: protein
2: yeah so <laughs> haven't even
0: talked about the fur domains <laughs> oh, like
2: 100 years <laughs> oh gosh uh, we should also mention oh.
1: for the listeners that the larger the protein is the harder nmr becomes because mm. you have to isolate certain domains without it affecting the conformation of the other domains
0: uh well the size matters for nmr for uh other reasons aside from that mm. um if it gets too big um The peaks aren't very well resolved and they just kind of fade away into the background. You have to do some really expensive stuff like uh, grow it up in um, deuterated water, (laughs) uh, which can get real pricey. Yeah. Uh, Like, yeah. Very, very expensive. Um, And at a certain point, you just can't see it anymore. So they're like really, really cool people doing large uh, complexes with NMR, but. I'm a wee baby just learning, so I'm going <laughs> to stick with this 15 kilodalton. All right, little buddy.
1: So, you know, you work on dysferlin, which is a very important protein. And that's actually, you work on a small portion of the protein, a small domain, and how calcium influences its function. Mm-hmm. But I don't imagine you were playing around with Legos as a kid telling yourself, like, oh, I'm going to figure out how dysferlin works. Oh, those- yeah. So. <laughs> what was that Piper yeah. so what was your first experience with science and what did you start off school doing?
0: Um, so first experience with science, um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. So, uh, Bill Nye was a big thing. He's up from up in Seattle. Uh, so that was super cool as a nineties kid. Um, having that kind of wacky example. Um, I didn't realize he was in Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, mostly just mucking around in my backyard, um, poking at things, you know, looking at stuff under a microscope that my parents didn't know how to use. (laughs) So I like kind of figured it out. I didn't know what the immersion oil was for. Um, (laughs) uh, But through through middle school and high school, um, I was pretty okay at both math and science and with the STEM push like, that's how you're going to make money. That's sort of why I got into it. Um, I started off as a marine biology major. My high school, they had a marine biology intensive uh, program, so it was just sort of a natural, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to totally work with dolphins. Did not happen. <laughs> Nobody gets to work with dolphins. It's very difficult. <laughs> you're going to be working with the kind of germs. Um, and whereas I really like diving and sailing, uh, I couldn't really see myself. out on a boat for months on end or uh, working in an aquarium or something. Um, So I left school for a little bit due to some financial and personal reasons. Came back as a chemical engineer because I was real sick of earning close to minimum wage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I thought I had the math jobs for it. But um, I didn't really enjoy that either the first couple intro classes. Um, So I switched to biochemistry, um, I guess, my f- second term of my s- first year back um i remember waiting in line to grab lunch in the um the campus uh, not really a diner little campus pub um with my uh general chemistry professor and he was like oh w- well what's your major you know just you know talking to your student and I told him engineering, and he made a face. <laughs>
1: For the listeners, it was a, ew, gross face. Uh, yeah. like,
0: oh, why are you wasting your time with that face? Uh, and it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, why don't you uh, do a spin in my lab and uh, uh, give research a try? And so I did, and I enjoyed it. Uh, there was a laser table involved. Very cool.
2: Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Fun machines. Yes,
0: yes. Give me lasers. It's all, all sorts of good stuff.
1: And at this point you're an undergrad and that was the time that you decided to switch into biochem. Yes. Okay. Yes.
2: Yeah. And so, uh, what particularly about, uh, biochem and I guess working with it, were you really interested in like what, w- what, was going on in his lab? Um, so his lab was looking
0: at how human serum albumin bound, um, uh, a couple different drugs. So human serum albumin, it's a really abundant protein in the blood. It binds all sorts of stuff, free fatty acids, um a uh, couple different drugs. I think we were looking at warfarin. This is like 10 years ago at this point, so.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Sorry. <laughs> um but what about biochemistry in particular? Um I found chemistry to be a little dry. That is, of course, very naive because my only experience with it was general chemistry. And I was like, okay, I'm good at this, but who wants to do PV equals NRT for the rest of their life? (laughs) Um, Maybe physical chemists, more power to you. Um, And uh, the straight up marine biology was a little bit too squishy for me. Um, I needed things more quantitative. Um, And yeah, I just didn't didn't think uh, my skill set would work well with like a field biologist. Um, So the biochemistry was a really uh, nice compromise. And just the problems that they're working on are very, um, have a real world applicability, which is something that I enjoyed and sort of took from the engineering.
2: If you're just joining us, you are listening to KBVR Corvallis eighty eight point seven FM. And this is Inspiration Dissemination where we're talking to graduate student PhD student actually, Shauna Otto from the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. And she was just telling us a little bit about her work with disferlin protein one of the domains of disferlin and all the awesome machines and stuff that she gets to work with and now we find out that in undergrad she was already working on proteins and a little bit about what what goes on within our own cells as an undergrad
1: but this wasn't the only professor that you worked with you also worked with a physical chemistry professor as well
2: So the first
0: one was also a physical chemist. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I worked for three physical chemists turned biochemists. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the second uh, professor, um, how do I want to transition into this? Uh, So the first professor we ended up not getting along very well. Um, I had uh, some issues come up Shortly after I joined his lab, and while he was supportive uh, research-wise, I don't think he had the tools to be as supportive um, with what I was going through. Um, So in the early 20s is generally when um, mental health issues can start to spring up if they've kind of laid dormant before, and that's uh, what happened with me. Um, and through, I, can I call this a Rube Goldberg-esque cascade <laughs> of unfortunate events, <laughs> uh, I ended up um, not having a place to live uh, for a good like, six, seven months um, when I, during my tenure in that lab. And uh, the professor knew about it, he actually found out about it uh, f- from my space. This is that. this is oh, how MySpace long days. ago this was. He was my friend on MySpace and saw <laughs> that I had posted, like, hey, anybody have a place to crash? Uh, and like pulled me into the office and talked to me about it. Um, and the solution there was to sleep in lab. Uh, he gave me a camping mat, which was very sweet. <laughs> uh, but probably not what I needed at the time well
2: intentioned, but maybe not the support that you're needing at the at the time of that this is going on yeah yeah uh i guess it, if it was like a, a couple week thing it would have been fine
0: um but it was, it was sort of long term uh and it got yeah it got pretty bad um uh that laser table i mentioned before there we had there was um uh, blackout curtains around it cuz you know you have la- you can't just have lasers <laughs> Pew pewing all over the lab. <laughs> yeah, but it what's called a blackout curtain, goes floor to ceiling, um, to keep any like stray beams from from going off. And uh, when the cleaning um, staff would come in in the evenings, uh, it's usually like once a week. It was probably Thursdays, can't remember. But I would close the curtains and I would hide under the table as like they came through and cleaned. And yeah, that was.
2: It's a real, real low spot there. So I can um, imagine that for an undergrad, you're like, you know, you're trying to keep up with classes, trying to figure out what you're going to do mm-hmm. next for your career and maintain like good standing at the university and stuff like that. Um, but you're also going through this major life experience mm-hmm. and this hardship. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, that must take some kind of toll. Like, what did you how did you get through it? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, if you look at my transcripts, uh, I didn't really. Uh, yeah, it was a really, really rough time. GPA wise. Um, it was really hard to study when you're really hungry. Uh, or you don't really have a spot to sit down like with your books. Um,
2: yeah, really relax. There's no no place like
0: to feel safe. Yeah. Sort of. Um, yeah. So, uh, GPA took a toll uh credit ratings took a toll uh, how long would you say that that went on um the first time was it was definitely over uh a summer and into the next uh, school year for a bit okay. um, I ended up getting a job doing supplemental instruction uh the next year which is I don't know if they have it here but it's um student led um courses to sort of help with traditionally difficult, um, uh, undergrad classes. Um, so I was doing, um, supplemental instruction for, um, general chemistry. Um, and so I was able to get employment there, which was really great. Um, and that continued throughout my tenure at, at Long Beach. Um, uh, so that kind of helped me dig myself out of it.
2: That time, so I'd say maybe six months or so. Okay, and so you were able to find this like extra employment that kind of helped with that, mm-hmm. and not necessarily through like um, university resources or like necessarily through the help of, of your mentor at the time, Yeah. Um, but uh, so then like mo- transitioning into the next part, like like what happens after that for you? Um, so
0: like I said, there was some friction between us. Um, I didn't really like where the research was going. Um, and he would make jokes like, oh, you're all gonna be a lab anyways, so why don't you go ahead and do this for me? And I just, eh, it just really didn't <coughs> feel great. Um, and while I really enjoyed undergraduate research, like I couldn't still stay in that situation. Um, and because I had had a place to live now, and <laughs> didn't, didn't need the lab to sleep in, um, uh, I went ahead and left. Um, And so the student job wasn't really enough to cover all my expenses, because it was only 20 hours a week at uh, whatever slightly above minimum wage was then. Um, So it helped, it couldn't really make uh, uh, all my ends meet. Um, So I took up a couple other random side jobs. I was a florist for a while, that was kind of fun. I worked for two different floral folks. One was just like a cute little stand on the side, and the other one was like a wedding florist, and that was Ooh, a whole nother world. Um,
1: and it was at this time that you were, essentially for the first time, seek mental health mental health care treatment.
0: Um, right? I sort of limped through the rest of my undergraduate degree. Um, I was uninsured, like many folks are, before uh, Obamacare, and you could stay on your parents' insurance until 26 or so. I ended up working for the second physical chemist. I took his physical chemistry course and... He kind of knew my story just through hearsay, and then approached me about doing work in his in his lab, and suggested I do a master's to sort of rehab my undergrad degree. And with the master's came a TA ship, and with a TA ship came insurance. So I was okay. finally able to.
1: And that was the first time. Yes. you It had, had insurance in forever, basically.
0: Yep. Since I was like, 19. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there was um, maybe. Yeah. A good. Like five, six year gap where I didn't have any, have any insurance.
1: So I'm, I'm going to play, uh, in an ignorant PI and okay, mm-hmm. now that you have healthcare, you know, you can, you know, get your, get your yearly physical and get an eye exam, you know, uh, n- now you're totally good, right?
0: <laughs> uh, so with, uh, with mental health, a lot of times it's a large pro uh, long process. To figure out what exactly is going on, part in part because we don't know a lot about the molecular mechanisms of oh, well, <laughs> how <we're, we're> all <laughs> of that idea. works. <laughs> um Yeah. So how you'll respond to certain treatments is really, really individualized, and they don't have a good way of knowing, ah, we just need to put you on this drug and you'll be fine. Um so it's definitely a process. And like, I, I still, um, and seeing somebody regularly to make sure that nothing pops up again, but it was, it was pretty bumpy, uh, during my master's and I didn't actually finish that. I ended up matriculating here to, um, Oregon state, uh, for the PhD program before I finished and took a downturn and yeah, I wasn't able to, to wrap up the thesis, unfortunately, but yeah, there wasn't a lot of There wasn't a lot of understanding about the process of seeking help um, at my old department. Just, yeah, not a lot of, not a lot of knowledge there with uh, the ins and outs of it.
2: Yeah. Maybe not a lot of uh, communication about it already. And then not training for, for folks of how to, how to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah.
1: Well, definitely that, right. Because, Uh, You know, you described two unique circumstances of two PIs, but it's not an isolated. Those are the only people that don't know how to be in a leadership role as a a PI Mm. and also know what help to offer. And knowing that a camping mat probably isn't sufficient to offer your undergrad. (laughs) But that's kind of a problem that plagues a lot of PIs, that they don't have any formal training generally for how to run a lab. And how to make sure your graduate students are okay, like that's
0: yeah. Me, maybe a couple of years from now, after say a postdoc, will be qualified to be a PI, even though I've had no formal training in pedagogy. Well, I have had a little bit of training in pedagogy, uh, or any of these sort of uh, soft skills. I'm doing air quotes right now <laughs> <laughs> because they're not soft. They're re- well, I guess they're. I suppose they're soft, but they're really essential um, for maintaining peace and harmony in your lab and just making sure that nobody falls through the cracks in your department. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty passionate about bringing up these issues um, with people in my department um, uh, and just trying to make the whole process a little more just.
2: It does seem like um, in academia, folks are starting to talk more about mental health in that there have been several articles and meta-analyses mm-hmm. Um, looking specifically at graduate students and kind of the emotional and physical toll, even financial toll that Mm -hmm. it can take on folks and that now that we're talking more about it on Twitter and in social media Mm -hmm. where these articles are really getting some traction, that hopefully in the future it will be improving and that maybe some trainings will start to crop up where PIs and, and folks that or in the shoes now that we will all be transitioning to maybe for us going forward in academia uh, will be um, kind of a better community community to learn those things.
0: Yeah. And no, there's been a definite shift in the conversation um, that I've seen over the past 10 years or so. Um, I think I was looking at somebody's syllabus and they had a basic needs statement at the end ah. saying like, Oh, if, the, if, you need help with finding food or shelter or anything like you can come and talk to me about it and I will direct you to resources. It's in the syllabus. Like that was completely unheard of right. um, back when I was having issues. Um, and it's much less uh, stigmatized like all my, all my cohort uh, and other grad students, or we joke about going to caps for therapy, but like we do that to make sure that people know it's okay right? Uh, to go see somebody and talk, talk stuff out and like my stuff uh, definitely predated grad school, um, but it's it's a rough time for, for anybody, and um, making sure the departments have resources, have knowledge of the resources on campus to give out to students um, is really, really important to me and really, really important to maintaining the health of just your department and your,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. So something that you said during our, our previous conversation was that during your master's, you took this class on, I think, membrane transport or membrane trafficking? Uh, membrane biochemistry. Membrane biochemistry. And that uh, that really got you interested in, in kind of what you're doing now, mm-hmm. which, like we said at the beginning, is looking at this protein that, um, Catches up holes or like has some role in that Mm -hmm. (laughs) hand wavy. (laughs) Not sure yet because Sean is figuring it out as we speak. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Has some role in that repair mechanism, and so that class you mentioned had gotten you interested actually in working with your current PI, Dr. Colin Johnson, Mm -hmm. here at Oregon State, and um, and so that's like what brought you here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how has it been um, better? I guess at Oregon State or or have, has it been different or has your life experience previously, did it kind of like facilitate in like, this is something that I need, this is a conversation I need to have and make sure that this is going to work <laughs> for me to continue and start this new PhD. Here. Um,
0: uh, coming to Oregon state was definitely helpful. Um, just in starting a new sort of page starting, you know, uh, tabula rasa. Um, I didn't have the conversation with my advisor about these things because I was fairly closed off about it. I remember running off to CAPS uh, my first year and like not telling anybody, like sneaking down to the building, like, oh, I hope nobody sees me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I knew I needed support um, right off the bat coming here. And luckily we have great insurance thanks Union. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I was able to get an off campus therapist uh, really early. Um, and they're actually psychiatrists on campus. Um, you can go see at the student health center. Um, so I got situated there pretty quickly. Um, the conversation with my advisor came definitely later. Uh, it was actually, I guess the first like frank conversation and not just me like dropping hints that i have issues uh, uh came earlier this year um where i had a kind of a pretty bad downturn um and my psychiatrist here suggested that i go to das and talk to somebody about accommodations
1: and DAS is uh disability accessibility services i
0: think so i'm awful
2: with acronyms i'm <laughs> I think gonna double so. check just to make sure I do know that it's ds.oregonstate.edu if anyone is interested in following up with that.
1: Disability Access, Access Services. Access, yes. And uh, we're also going to post links to CAPS Counseling and Psychological Services through our Twitter page, and you can also find it on our blog post as well.
2: Yes. Yeah, so so your CAPS uh, therapist mm-hmm. helped you find DAS services here on Oregon State. So what, what does that mean? what does, what is that? Uh, <laughs> or so for you, I know for everyone, yeah. it's different, but yeah.
0: So for everybody, it's different. Um, as a graduate student, I don't, well, I had coursework, but I'm all wrapped up with it now. So things like traditional accommodations you would think of would be like extended test time, mm-hmm. um, the, a quiet space to um, do exams in. Um, but I didn't think any of that really applied to me. I can't, have extended time to write my thesis. I guess I could, but <laughs> <laughs> it's not a sit down in a room and write your thesis uh, a p- situation. That would be horrible. <laughs> oh God, I'm sweating. <laughs> uh, so I didn't know what my options were. So when I sat down um, uh, with a woman that they uh, hooked me up with um, and started talking about it, um, we came up with the idea of sort of a mental health concierge yeah. <laughs> relationship. I'm not really sure how else to explain it. right? Um, but uh, so she would act as a go-between um, between me and my PI and other people in my department um, that needed to be sort of in the loop just to know that, yes, Shauna is okay. She's just having a rough time right now. Um, and so having her in the room when I like, had the conversation with my PI and um, uh, the graduate advisor from my department um, was really helpful. Just having a a nice neutral third party um, who already kind of knew my story and she could say things
2: uh, on my behalf while I'm kind of a sobbing mess. Um. Right, so <laughs> yeah. it's one thing that you – it's something that she does that – You don't have to do because you can now focus on feeling better or, yeah, or like taking care of yourself so that you don't have to worry about emailing or worry about like uh, making sure that such and such is covered or that the NMR is turned off or something like oh, that, gosh, that <laughs> is not that
0: is not my job it's beyond my pay grade
2: okay well, whatever it is <laughs> please but, don't turn the NMR off really but bad. you have you have someone that's helping you as a buffer or as a um, messenger or yeah. just someone that is advocating for you yeah. and needing to take some time or whatever it is See, as you,
0: usually when my downturns happen like 25% of it is just sort of kind of in the moment feeling awful, like I'm wearing a lead vest. And then the other 75% is me feeling awful about feeling awful. <laughs> something that you know someone with a cold or something wouldn't really worry about. Mm-hmm. But just like the, the guilt, of like, oh my gosh, I had to take time off for myself. This is it's unacceptable. Um, having somebody there to sort of ping my advisor and anybody else that needs to be in the know that hey, Shana's just taking a couple days knowing that they know my situation it makes it much easier to transition Mm -hmm. back into being productive and feeling good um instead of self-flagellating for (laughs) like 75% (laughs) of the time like ah how dare you do
2: you think that is kind of related also to the expectation for graduate students in academia like maybe there is this like real graduate student guilt in that like um it's maybe not an expectation that is strict with your advisor, but mm-hmm. just because of the pressure of it all, and the need that you're or like you're on your own path and you're kind of like setting your direction and setting your own deadlines, that taking time for yourself feels, like you feel guilty about it. Yeah, <laughs> like we have no set
0: hours. I mean, I'm supposed to be working 0. .49 FTE, but oh no. Um, uh, yeah, setting your own hours and having a very loose schedule uh, can be helpful for somebody in my situation uh, because I can just make up for lost time but yeah the guilt of not being in lab and having to take time for myself is
2: uh, got to be a bit much so, so you have an advocate to kind of like yeah. offset that Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: on that
1: note I think something common to most graduate students is because we're often doing lab work or <laughs> field work we <laughs> are physically isolated from others where <laughs> you know you're in the lab at odd hours because reactions take weird times to do Mm -hmm. and by the time you're physically isolated you're kind of mentally tired you're sleepy Mm -hmm. and then you let that go on for you know a month because you're trying to pump out all your lab work before that conference at the end of the at the end of the quarter (laughs) and then all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh i'm a mess (laughs) so i think it's it's rather easy to kind of get in that hole and not realize you're in the hole yeah right i I don't know where i was going with that that was just a (laughs) personal uh, I found myself in the hole and was like, oh no. no. Yeah. It, like, it, like oh, oh no, how do I get myself out now? Oh no. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't even realize <laughs> I was digging myself in this hole.
0: Ah, um, 30 feet down. Yeah. No <laughs> rope. Ah. <laughs>
1: um, okay. So we'll do a transition on to. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the way it sounds, at least, is Oregon State seems to have been a little bit of an easier way because we have this kind of foundation of services available mm-hmm. and your PI was also really open to kind of working with you instead of just, well, not being very helpful like, yeah. like, like other people. Um, so I, I, I wonder if you can kind of look back and think how Oregon State has been impactful in, in your success as a researcher. Uh,
0: yeah, just giving me enough as a graduate student, uh, in terms of pay, um, yeah, the, uh, the insurance is great. The on-campus services are great. Um, and, um, I don't know if it's a consequence of just the time frame that I was here versus, um, at my previous institution, you know, it was like a five to 10 year gap. Um, and just the conversation has changed a little bit more. Um, But yeah, uh, I think Mm -hmm. if I had continued at my previous institution, well, I didn't finish my master's, um, but if I guess I was going to do a PhD there, it probably wouldn't have been successful just because all the history and, um, you know, once you ask for help and don't really get it, you're kind of like shy to ask for it the next time. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what sort of made me put up barriers, uh, set up my own barriers to asking for help here. Um, so actually, uh, I'm not
1: really sure where I'm going with this, but so on that note, you know, we typically end our show with, uh, we ask you for advice Mm -hmm. and this is the first part, first of two parts of advice I'm going to ask. But the first part is, um, how do you break the stigma of talking about mental health to your research group or to your PI on kind of this micro level instead of the social level, like going through the Twitter sphere and whatnot? Like,
0: Hmm. Um,
1: do we accept that it's the first conversation is going to be really darn awkward?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's real, real awkward. Sorry. (laughs) There's really no getting around it. Uh, I guess the more people that have this conversation, the less of a stigma it's going to be. It's, it's like any sort of chronic medical issue, um, mm-hmm. uh, or it should, it should be, um, about as stigmatized as, you know, flu. rheumatoid arthritis or the flu or some or you know, recurrent flu or something. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely cyclic. Um, yeah, it's probably just going to be real awkward. Um. Maybe do it over email. It's slightly less painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have to be in the same room as them. Um, I mean, how I broached it early on is I just said, gave blanket, like, oh, I have a recurrent medical issue. Um, I will occasionally be out from time to time. I'll try and keep you in the loop. That's how I framed it initially. Um, but let me tell you, after uh, sort of breaking the ice just by, like, sobbing in a room in front of him, <laughs> Um, uh, it was like pulling off a band-aid it was real bad Uh, but now everything's fine because everything's out in the open I don't feel like I have to hide it which caused more stress than I think it needed to um, yeah just rip off that band-aid if you've got a recurrent uh, sort of medical issue or mental health issue Um, if if your PI is not cool with it uh, that's their problem and, uh, and it's that not the union on can you help with. yes yes um hopefully everybody is uh tuned in enough to the conversation to know that it shouldn't be a problem they need to work around it uh you know there are laws against not working around it um right uh but it makes it makes it a lot easier just to not have to hide things so
2: just rip out that bandaid, guys And so what, what would your advice then be for our listeners? Um, it's okay to ask for help. Um,
0: and it's really hard to not take it personally when the help isn't given. Um, but it's okay to ask for help again and look elsewhere and to just really take care of yourself. Um, yeah, you deserve more than you think you do, or you deserve exactly how much you think you deserve. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So we end the show on a song. So (laughs) you chose Keep On Living. And why did you choose that song?
0: Uh, It's uh, definitely one that I tune into to sort of boost my mood. If I've had a a rough day or week, month, I don't know, longer. Um, You just kind of have to keep on living, keep on trucking, even though... Like, stupid stuff's making you cry, and you just can't get out of your own head. You
2: just got to keep on living, and it'll eventually it'll eventually uh, turn up. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shauna, for sharing your story with us and for coming on Inspiration Dissemination to tell us about Disferlin as yeah, well. It's my pleasure. Yeah. All right. So this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on Sundays at 7 p.m. from Oregon State University campus. We're going to end our show with Keep on Living by La Tigre. Thanks again, Shauna.
1: Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please tell your friends about it and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so other podcast peeps can find our show.
0: The theme music was performed
2: by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannum. Special thanks to the supporting staff for KBVR that allowed this show and podcast to be
0: possible.
1: The show was started by Jian Kamvar and Joey Holber in 2012. Its hosts include Matt McConnell, Steve Friedman, Mackenzie Smith, Kristen Finch, Adrian Gallo, Lillian Padgett cobb Lori Lutz, Heather Forsyth, Maggie Exton, Scott Classic, Marcus Weinman, Daniel Watkins, and Harrison Steirwalt.
0: To learn about other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, please visit our well-curated website at
2: blogs.oregonstate.edu. inspiration.
1: And finally, Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at KBVRID and Facebook at Inspiration Dissemination.
0: Thank you for listening and stay curious, my friends.